0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Listener supported. WNYC
0: Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Charles Berquist.
2: And I'm Flora Lichtman. Last week on the show, we talked about how pharma companies are using artificial intelligence to speed up the drug research and development pipeline. And this week, we're zeroing in on another part of that process, animal testing. Before a new drug can begin clinical trials in humans, it gets tested on animals. But things are changing. Late last year, Congress passed the FDA Modernization Act 2.0, which cleared the way for new drugs to skip animal testing. But can we expect to phase out animal testing altogether? And what technologies might make that possible? To help us answer those questions and more is my guest, Dr. Thomas Hartung, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Hartung, welcome to Science Friday.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so what is driving this push to phase out animal testing for drugs? Is this about? ethical concerns or for scientific or for safety reasons?
1: It is for all of these and uh, also for economical reasons. You have to imagine we are not 70 kilogram rats. A lot of wrong decisions have been based on on this wrong assumption. Pharma companies fail in 95% of the the cases they get something into humans.
2: They fail in 95% of the cases.
1: Yeah, that's the failure rate of clinical trials. Wow. And if we have anything which is more relevant to humans, which makes them spend their money on better drugs, they want to go for it. Even though we have learned the hard way for drugs like Alzheimer, that very often our animal models have been so misleading. We could cure tons of animals, but uh, we cannot cure patients.
2: So we need something that approximates humans better than animals. Is that the idea?
1: That's exactly the point. And, and this was theory until... Most recently, when stem cell technologies really allowed us to produce human-relevant models.
2: So let's talk about some of these alternative approaches to animals. I know you work on organoids. What, what is an organoid?
1: An organoid is a structure which has organ-like properties, and it is self-developing out of stem cells.
2: A human stem cells.
1: A human stem cell, yes. It is only since 2006, so for, by scientific measures, it is really very recent, that we do have ethically not problematic stem cells from humans. Uh, because Yamanaka developed a technology to take some skin cells and reprogram them and make them like an embryonic stem cell.
2: And so you can use these to, to make tiny organs?
1: Exactly. So in our case, for example, we are producing brain organoids um, so we're able to produce thousands of tiny, tiny little balls. They're just as big as uh, the pin of a needle, and then we can use these and run our experiments as if it was a piece of human brain.
2: Do they do they look like tiny brains? Like if I were to look at it under the microscope, would it be like a microscopic version of of a brain?
1: No, not at all. They, they look like a basketball, I would say. They're just perfectly round, a bit of a rough surface.
2: Do they match the architecture of the brain in any way?
1: To some extent. Uh, we find, first of all, all of the cells of the brain, which is already a big one. Mm. Because uh, cultures in the past uh, had typically just the neurons, but 50% of the brain is actually helper cells, which is very important. They form circuits, so the cells are talking to each other, like the brain cells do. But also these helper cells are starting to wrap themselves around the long tubes which are coming out of these neurons, which are connecting them. We call this myelin. And this is a very, very important feature of the brain, makes it 100 times faster.
2: Wow, that is amazing. I've also heard about organs on a chip. Is that similar? or Are they different?
1: Yeah, and, and the chip is not a chip to snack on. <laughs> it is. A, uh, <laughs> this refers to systems where you can uh, perfuse, which means to get liquid, like blood th- flowing through the organ. We can pump liquids through these systems, and by doing so, we can get them larger. They are much better maintained. They get their oxygen, they get their sugar and whatever they need. So these systems are Highly engineered, very small, like a computer chip, and this allows us to really assemble even combinations of different organs. We are talking now for human-on-chip systems or multi-organ-on-chip systems.
2: Oh wow! So you can link the chips together, like you could link the the brain to the lungs to the heart, kind of thing.
1: Exactly. There's, uh, there's some people who have developed plug-and-play type of uh, systems where you can really say, well, for this experiment, I need a liver and a heart. Yeah, perhaps a brain would not be bad. <laughs> so it's, uh, it is fantastic how this disruptive technology has been developing over the last decade.
2: What part of the drug testing process do you think that these organoids or organs on a chip, where do you think they could be most effective in the drug testing process? Where do you think they would outperform animals?
1: I think they are outperforming them instantly because they're human. You have to understand that half of the drugs which come to the market nowadays are actually human proteins or antibodies against human proteins. Mm. Um, Testing them in animals is mostly useless. Sometimes they work in some uh, monkeys. This holds both for safety. Um, This is one of the important things. We want to know that the drug is safe before we go into humans, but also for efficacy. Is it really helping? Is it curing a disease?
2: Are they cheaper than animals to make?
1: On the long term, absolutely. So let's say our brain organoids, for example, they are less than a dollar a piece compared to a rat, which is $30 plus. But this is not really relevant. If you develop a drug, this is $2.4 billion before you get to the market. (laughs) And this does not matter whether you have uh, an additional animal experiment or not. It's important that you put your money on the right thing.
2: Uh, So you're saying it's peanuts, that the difference between the cost. It's it's whether you can avoid failing.
1: That's exactly it. Uh, It is all uh, an economical thing and timing. Animal tests can take enormously long. So, for example, if you would like to know whether something is producing cancer, it takes you five years to have the result. Because you're treating the animals for two years, and then it takes you about two years to cut them into thin slices to find any possible tumor. And with organizing and reporting, that's easily four to five years.
2: Is it faster with these organs on a chip or organoids?
1: In general, yes. The systems are typically done in the month range. You don't need to wait until it has grown to something you can find with the microscope. Uh, our modern technologies allow us to use... The gene expression, for example, what has changed in the cells in order to say, "Yep, yeah, this is going to be cancer."
2: On this show, we've talked about how researchers are using how researchers are using artificial intelligence to find new drugs. Are people using AI for drug safety and efficacy testing?
1: Yeah, the AI for safety is actually exactly my own background for. Efficacy, it is really about generating ideas, finding things which we might not have thought about. That's where artificial intelligence is helpful at the moment. About 40% of the drugs which are under development at the moment have been designed with some AI. For safety, it is fascinating that AI can help us to mine all of the existing information which means very often it can find nothing on the substance itself. That's a new chemical often, but it finds something on things which look pretty similar. By looking at all of the chemicals which are similar and all of the properties we know, they are astonishingly good in predicting also the safety of the
3: substance.
2: So basically, if you have a drug that looks like another drug... You can, And you know that other drug has safety issues, you can then deduce that this drug might have safety issues, and AI can do that analysis faster than anything else? Exactly.
1: We have a database now which has information on 900,000 chemicals, and it includes about 100 million structures. So you, you imagine um, all of this information AI can mine and learn from, humans can't. And whenever you have big data, then AI is shining.
2: Yeah, I mean, we know that there are problems with big data, too. I mean, a big part of the conversation around AI is that it's, it replicates human bias. And we know drug testing has had this issue in particular. Like, I know there's been studies showing that because drug dosage trials are tested on men, women have been overmedicated. How do we develop a tool that is more useful than what we already have if we're pulling on data that has bias in it?
1: I mean, you have always to look, is it plausible? Is it, uh, can the answer be in the data? And uh, we certainly must not hand over to AI, make it autonomous. It is at the moment um, a fantastic tool to get information on a silver platter to take better decisions. It is definitely not yet, <laughs> and probably will never be, a tool which just you press a button and it says go to the market.
2: So animal testing started as a safety check, Test a new drug in animals, make sure it's not toxic before it goes to humans. If we skip the animal testing, do you feel like we could be missing a key safety measure?
1: I'm actually more and more optimistic that we are actually doing something good here. I mean, the first thing, science is, is incredibly fast and changing. One, two years, our knowledge in the life sciences is doubling. And completely in contrast to this, These animal tests have been introduced between the 20s of the last century and the 70s. I was not yet born or in kindergarten (laughs) when these animal (laughs) tests were introduced. So so there must be something in the box which is reflecting us humans better. And this is why um, I believe it is time for change and it's a matter of change management more. The alternative methods, whether it's these organoids, organ and chip systems, whether it's AI, they are actually outperforming most of these animal tests.
2: How far along are we with these alternatives to animal testing? I mean, are we at proof-of-concept phase? Are pharmaceutical companies already using these techniques?
1: Yes. Pharmaceutical companies use everything which gives them relevant information and is making them move faster. I'm very much in safety. Toxicology is the field. The pharma industry is already spending four times more on cell cultures and computational methods for safety than they spend on animals. It is only that for the final step of registering their drugs, they also have to deliver a package with animals.
2: What is your long-term vision? Do you imagine that we're going to eliminate animal testing altogether?
1: I would say we will need some animal testing. Uh, For example, we have to develop veterinary drugs. So human drugs have to be tested in human trials. You need animal trials. I can also not really imagine how we would measure effects on behavior in animals in in a non-sentient system so it's probably some animal testing will stay but this black box testing put something in the animal and wait whether something is happening and then fighting for the next two years whether this is human relevant that's that's not a healthy process
2: That's all the time we have. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Thomas Hartung, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks for having me. After the break, a way to grow food and sequester carbon emissions through fungi. Stay with us.
4: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters.
0: This is Science Friday, I'm Charles Bergquist. This week, another report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, brought dire warnings about our planet's climate future and warnings that drastic action is needed now to avoid catastrophe. One action the report recommends is an overhaul of our food production systems. Writing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, researchers suggest one way of sequestering CO2 is cultivating certain kinds of edible mushrooms. Dr. Paul Thomas is one of the authors of that report. He's research director at the company Mycorrhizal Systems. They help farmers grow truffles, and an honorary professor in the University of Stirling's Faculty of Natural Sciences in the UK. Welcome to Science Friday.
3: Uh, Thank you, Charles. Thank you for having me. So I've
0: seen commercial mushroom farms, especially for things like the standard white button mushrooms that you find in supermarkets, but that's not what we're talking about here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So those uh, mushrooms that you see in the supermarket, they're what we call uh, saprotrophic mushrooms. So they grow off a uh, degrading plant matter. So they're quite often grown indoors on plant matter. And, and actually, they use a lot of peat as well in, in the production of those mushrooms. So they grow in a, in a very different way to the ones that we're proposing.
0: So the ones that we're talking about now, are these kinds of fungi that people might have encountered before if they're not a forest forager of
3: some kind? Yeah. So these kind of mushrooms, actually, there are some species which they may have encountered in restaurants or on supermarket shelves. They include things like chanterelles or puccini or king Though um, Those are all in the same category of fungi, but normally they're not ones that you often find, you know, on, on supermarket shelves or often in the restaurant or, or more specialist places.
0: As you mentioned, there are types of fungi that live on rotting wood and you can even buy those uh, kit logs inoculated with spores if you want to do that at home. But the ones we're talking about, these are somehow living with the trees in a symbiotic relationship.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So they're what we call uh, mycorrhizal mushrooms. And what that means is they grow in yeah, in symbiosis in partnership with a plant host. And for this group of fungi we're focusing on here, they grow with uh, woody plants. And what they do is they cover the root system of the tree and they form an association with that tree called the mycorrhiza. And it's basically to facilitate the transfer of nutrients and resources. And it creates a big surface area to do that. So like our lungs have a very big surface area for gas exchange. Uh, For the fungi, they create a very big surface area interaction with the tree. So they can provide the tree with nutrients. And in return, the tree sends the fungus sugars because the fungus can't access sugars on its own. So there's this trade of resources and uh, they help the tree to grow. The tree helps the fungus to grow. and, And yeah, it's a completely symbiotic association.
0: You have a company that helps people to set up their own truffle farms. So you have a vested interest in this idea of trees and fungus. Are there places that are already doing this beyond truffles, other types of fungus?
3: So I, I absolutely started with truffles because I became obsessed with the research and the science. I just thought it was mind boggling. And we're looking at applying that technology now elsewhere to use it for other challenges. This kind of technology is being used by a number of researchers. So there are a few groups working on this. It's very small, that there's a handful of people worldwide who are really focusing on it. And most of the progress has been made with a group called Lactarius, so the genus Lactarius. And they produce a mushroom called the Delicious Milk Cap. Um, Lactarius deliciosa which has got a great name and obviously hints towards that it's a, you know quite a palatable species but it's one that uh, we can produce so we can get the mycorrhizae growing on the root system and it will produce freezing bodies sometimes as quick as just 18 months uh, but what we're looking at doing to follow on with this project we want to screen a large number of species and get many species which will grow in different uh, bioclimatic conditions but
0: what are the mechanics here how do you plant the fungus so to speak
3: yeah so it's different for different species so some of these mycorrhizal fungi it's very hard for us to get them to associate with the tree and there's a role for different bacteria and probably also different fungi in some cases which all need to be there to form that association for some of the others we can use spores so you can use the cap of the mushroom grind it up introduce it to the root system And then for others, like this Lactaria species I mentioned, spores don't work for some reason we don't fully understand. So we have to take a piece of the fruiting body and grow it on agar in the lab. So we grow it in petri dishes. And then when that fungus is growing healthily and happily, we put it in close proximity to the root system of the tree under sterile conditions. And then it forms this mycorrhiza. And in the case of that species, actually, it's this beautiful orange mycorrhiza, And then we can plant that into the field to produce these mushrooms.
0: I'm trying to get a sense of scale here. How much edible fungus can one tree produce?
3: There's been very few trials done on this. And the trials that have been done, the production figures round about on a hectare basis, which is 100 meters by 100 meters, or 2.47 acres, if you work in acres, produces about 1000 kilos to 3000 kilos, seems to be about the productive range. But that's very small data set. And I'm sure, you know, with different species and different techniques, we can produce more than that. But we did our analysis based on the lower end of that spectrum, based on producing a thousand kilos per year per hectare. So it's it's very small volume for the land use area. But even so, if we combined it with current forestry activity uh, that's occurred over the past 10 years globally, that would be enough to produce enough food outputs to support eighteen point nine million people uh, annually, which is huge. And for China alone, that would be four point six million people annually. So it's the idea is to use current forestry activities, inoculate the trees with this mushroom, so we're not taking up more land area for food production, uh, and it also opens up more land area that we can reforest with trees while still getting a, a, a food output from that land, because uh, there's, there's this conflict in land use globally.
0: I see. The current paper addresses the the sort of climate advantages of doing this. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
3: In this system, because we're growing it with living trees, um, we, we're planting young trees. So we're planting new trees, which have got the root system covered in this fungus. So as those trees grow, they sequester carbon. They're pulling it out of the atmosphere. And as they're doing it, they're producing this food crop. So it's one of the few food crops in the world where in production of the food, we're sequestering carbon, we're pulling it out of the atmosphere and providing some mitigation towards uh, anthropogenically driven climate change. We compared it to nine other major food groups and even our most efficient food group, which is the production of pulses and grains. They still emit carbon in their production, whereas this fungus would do the opposite when you inoculate the trees with these fungi, they can also sequester more carbon anyway in the ground than the tree growing on its own, because you end up with a much larger area of biomass below ground, which is locking that carbon in. So it's a way that we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere, of course, through tree planting, do it on a bigger scale, but in doing so also still get food crop from that land. So we don't have to sacrifice forest for uh, food production.
0: Right. But I mean, even, even given that, this does not seem like a very... Efficient means of producing food. I mean, inoculating an individual trees that need a lot of time and space to grow.
3: Yeah, absolutely. What we really need to do is make this a really uh, extensive, quick, cheap, easy system. So we can't rely on sterile techniques where we need to involve laboratories. Our idea is to slot into current forestry activity so we can inoculate trees very cheaply, very quickly, and cheap is the key word really, you know, it needs to be very cheap per unit basis. So we can do this on a large scale uh, over a large, large area. And then in terms of land use, it is relatively inefficient. It's more efficient than extensive beef production, but that's quite an inefficient use of land anyway. Um, So it is relatively land inefficient, but it has all these associated benefits, all the conservation, biodiversity benefits we get with tree planting. you can have a timber crop at the end of the day and of course the carbon sequestration. So we should view it in terms of this plethora of benefits, not just how much food is produced per meter square.
0: Mm. How much carbon dioxide are we talking about when we're talking about the the climate benefits here?
3: So uh, what we did is we looked at all forested areas in the world really so all different, uh, areas from the subtropics to the tropics to boreal areas and we looked at different land uses so whether it's primary forest secondary forest or planted forest and the greatest potential is probably in boreal regions where you can lock up maybe 12 tons uh, of carbon per hectare per year which is relatively high and then actually in the tropics we showed that in some tropical regions it, would, it could lead to an emission so it might not have the same benefit and the caveat to that is the data we use from it was from 637,000 satellite and light form data points. And what they do is they look at aerial images and they work out the carbon flux of these systems. And in the tropical regions, we were showing a net uh, emission of carbon, but probably because there was so much deforestation in those regions that it was showing an emission overall. So it's slightly complicated by the data set, but for sure, different environments have different carbon sequestration potential from from 12 tonnes a hectare uh, downwards.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about this as one way of reducing a carbon impact, but how is climate change affecting fungi overall?
3: Like all biological systems, it's it's a mixed story. So we see in Europe, for example, if we look at truffles, because I've, I've done a lot of work on climate change and truffles, this year um, Hungary, so Hungary produces a lot of truffles, typically produces about 80 tonnes a year, Their production this year was almost nothing because of the extreme heat events in Europe. And we're seeing this this trend towards declining production because of increasing heat and increasing drought in Europe. A number of years ago, we published a paper predicting this was gonna happen and the extent to which it would happen, and it's happening now. So a number of species are very vulnerable. Of course, it also means that other species can grow in areas they couldn't previously. You know, because the climate's got slightly milder, so they can exist in that in that climate now. And that's that's been the case in the UK, where we can grow Mediterranean species now, which we couldn't have done before the Industrial Revolution. So there's the, there's this change in boundaries and there's this vulnerability. But we're in for some big challenges. I think some big challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you call the specific uh, species that that you're looking at the the delicioso. Are they particularly delicious?
3: Yeah, they're great. They're great. (laughs) I really like them. And there's a related species actually that grows in the US, which is bright blue, which is even cooler, Lactarius indigo. And we did a a paper on that a couple of years ago. But they're they're really good, tasty mushrooms. Yeah, they're delicious. Everyone should be eating them. Hopefully, we'll get there. Yeah.
0: Dr. Paul Thomas is research director at the company Mycorrhizal Systems and an honorary professor in the University of Stirling's Faculty of Natural Sciences in the UK. Thanks so much for talking with me today.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So, Flora, we've talked about how fungi could help with planetary problems, but this next story is about what happens when a fungus itself becomes the problem, not in a the last of us sense, but in a way that could actually destroy a town?
2: Yes, this one doesn't go down as easy. A Tennessee town near the Jack Daniels whiskey distillery is awash in a fungus that coats trees, houses, stop signs, you name it. It is appropriately called whiskey fungus.
0: Uh, uh, so I'm pro-whiskey, but a town-destroying fungus fueled by whiskey It's a little hard to swallow.
2: I spoke to Dr. James A. Scott, a professor at the University of Toronto, who solved the mystery of where this fungus sits on the fungal family tree. And he slung me all the neat details on whiskey fungus and its booze-fueled superpower. Well, tell me about this fungus. First of all, what is it feeding on?
4: So the the fungus can feed on ethanol, as you'd expect from the habitat that it lives in. But uh, equally, you can grow it In the laboratory in the absence of ethanol and probably in nature it also grows in the absence of ethanol the the process of distillation is intended to concentrate the the alcohol and then certain kinds of alcohol like whiskey tequila rum it's a long list uh, after the distillation process are placed in barrels and then aged for a period of time and that period of time that they spend that the alcohol spends in the barrel imparts it with certain flavors and certain characteristics that are desirable. And it's during the aging process where in these porous wooden barrels, the ethanol uh, escapes.
2: So it's actually just feeding on the, the whiskey.
4: It feeds on the whiskey that that uh, essentially leaks out as vapor from the barrels Got and into the, into the surrounding environment.
2: And can it bubble up near any kind of distillery or is this fungus just like a straight up whiskey gal?
4: So whiskey and aged spirits uh, are where where I've found most of this, but then I, I have to admit that that's largely where I've spent time studying it. Um, there are certainly other processes that are industrial processes that emit alcohol vapor into the air. Uh, for example, baking is is one. You know, when you use bread yeast to rise flour, it produces ethanol. And during the baking process of of bread, that ethanol is off-gassed through the vent and into the environment. So we find around large commercial bakeries that sometimes there's an accumulation of this fungus, uh, at least around the exhaust vents from ovens, and sometimes it uh, disperses a little bit further than that as well.
2: What does it look like?
4: It's hard to describe. It's a sort of streaky black fungus that gets on all kinds of surfaces so it's not limited to the kinds of surfaces where you'd normally see fungus like organic surfaces this fungus can grow on on unusual things like fences and road signs and cars it can grow on window glass you know a range of different things that you wouldn't expect fungus to grow on and it produces a sort of streaky black growth when there's a lot of alcohol emission that growth can actually get quite thickened into a into a thickened crust. It's not at that point a single fungus that's involved. It's probably a kind of evolving biofilm that includes uh, many different fungi. But species of Bodwinia, which is this this group of fungi that we call whiskey fungi, are likely the primary colonists that are that are sort of the founding members of that biofilm.
2: Oh wow! So there's a whole ecosystem. In this Tennessee town near the Jack Daniels distillery, residents have complained for years that this fungus is causing property damage. There's even a lawsuit from property owners. How destructive is it, or can it be?
4: Well, once the fungus gets onto surfaces, it tends to anchor on and and hold on fairly well. So it it can be removed, but it's only removed through mechanical action like pressure washing, or scrubbing, or a combination of of both. Uh, So those processes alone can cause accelerated aging of materials, and the fungus attaching on uh, does some damage as well. So it causes the materials to break down. But I, I should say that there are other jurisdictions where there's a lot more tolerance, and even a kind of celebration of this fungus. I remember I remember really? one situation where I was in in France, uh, near Bordeaux, working on this fungus, and I was taking a break from touring distilleries.
2: First of all, this sounds like a good job.
4: <clears throat> sitting at a little cafe. it is a great job. Sitting at a little cafe. and And as I was sitting at the cafe, I looked down at the at the bistro table and the pattern of the formica on the surface of the bistro table. Was modeled after the pattern of this fungus growing on the uh, on the walls in the town. So I thought, you know, here's here's a culture that uh, you know is actually, in a way, celebrating this this patina of fungal growth on surfaces in a way that you know we don't necessarily uh, hear.
2: Can it make people sick?
4: That's not really clear. Uh, as far as I know, have been no studies looking specifically at at what this what this fungus does or doesn't do. I suspect that like any fungus, that if there's enough exposure to it, then it could probably have some deleterious effects. But that's not a unique property of this fungus. It's just something that that would be you know, characteristic of any fungus. Um, but any specific effects related to this fungus, as far as I know, just haven't been studied.
2: That's about all we have time for. Thank you, Dr. Scott.
4: My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Flora.
2: Dr. James A. Scott is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, based in Toronto, Canada. We have to take a break, and when we come back, a conversation with NASA's new scientific leader, Dr. Nicola Fox. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Flora Lichtman.
0: And I'm Charles Berquist. Last month, NASA announced a new scientific leader, Dr. Nicola Fox, She's taking on a critical role at NASA, shaping the agency's science priorities and overseeing roughly 100 missions with a budget of over $7 billion. Her portfolio includes space science from astrophysics and Earth science to the planets in our own solar system to exoplanets far beyond. Previously, she was director of the heliophysics division at NASA, which studies the sun and its role in the solar system. Joining me now to talk more about her new position, career path, and plans for science at NASA is my guest, Dr. Nicola Fox. Her official title is Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate based at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Fox.
5: Thanks so much.
0: So this is a big job. Are you having a kind of kid in a candy store moment or a, oh my, what have I done moment here?
5: Um, a little bit of both, I think. Definitely, kid in the candy store, because you know when you, I think the first time I gave a talk, and instead of just having the heliophysics fleet, I had the entire science mission directorate fleet. You know, all of those missions that you were just talking about you know, around all of the different areas, and uh, that was that was a oh golly, look at look at all the things that that I have to worry about, to manage, to to enjoy. And then there's also the good grief, what have I done? Uh, moments, too, when I described it as, you know, when Wiley e. Coyote's Coyote is running along and Roadrunner holds up a sign that says, turn back. <laughs> and then he keeps going and she turned back and then he's off the cliff and falling. I'm, uh, there was a moment where I kind of felt like, I'm off the cliff. Uh, <laughs> 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 but I quickly scrambled back on. But it is, as you say, it's a very big job and there's so many different aspects to it. And, you know, and I really do feel... That I am responsible for the success of NASA's science program. And so, you know, there is that, that kind of, Oh, this is, this is a huge, huge job. And, and, um, you know, we all have confidence crises every now and again and think, golly, can I really do it? But, you know, I'm sort of taking it one week at a time. And so I'm now in week four and we've had three successful weeks. So, um, you know, I think that's, (laughs) that's, that's, that's great. And there's always new challenges and new things to do every single day.
0: Right. But you're not new to NASA. But before this, you ran the heliophysics unit, as I mentioned. You oversaw the Parker Solar Probe mission, which touched the outer surface of the sun for the first time. What was the big thing you took away from that experience?
5: So being with the, the Parker Solar Probe team, which I, I did before I came to the agency, I was at the Applied Physics Lab, uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, and I was the project scientist for Parker Solar Probe. And that was an amazing, amazing experience. It's an incredible mission, you know, 60 years from uh, initial sort of, oh, that would be good to us actually launching. For me, the thing I learned from from that one was just the power of working in a really high performing team. And just learning to rely on people and learning that, you know, it's okay to ask for help. And, you know, there's always someone that's got your back, you know, that kind of feeling. And so when I came to the agency, to the Heliophysics Division in 2018, I jumped into the middle of a really high-performing team, you know. And it was just a pleasure to work alongside them and to lead them and to, you know, really lead the Heliophysics Division to do great things.
0: Tell me a little bit about your own science interests. What, what questions are you really interested in from a scientific perspective?
5: Oh, golly. I mean, I, so many, actually. I mean, if I stick with my, my sort of training, then, you know, I'm interested in, in the sun uh, how the sun works. But more importantly to, to my own research was really how that continually streaming solar atmosphere, the solar wind, how that impacts the Earth and and what sort of space weather phenomena it causes. You know, I, my PhD was studying the the aurora and you know kind of wh- when the aurora may be formed under conditions that you might not think it would form under. And so, you know, there, there's always part of me that's still still in the oh, we're talking about the aurora, that's great. But you know, we have <laughs> aurora on other planets, we have solar activity on other stars in other stellar systems, and so I, I think that you know for stepping into this role, it's really the excitement of how the questions that maybe we ask in heliophysics, how they transfer into the other divisions and and the sort of synergies of the the type of science we do. Certainly, you know, you, you can't not look at a James Webb space telescope image and not go, wow, you know, and and just thinking about the fact that we can study our own sun because it's kind of a star in our backyard and not that it was easy to get to. It took 60 years to develop that technology to get the mission to do that. But we are able to study that star kind of close up. And, you know, what we learn about that star, It's we say it's an average star, uh, which makes it sound like it's nothing to get excited about. But it's a star that, you know, that actually supports life on Earth. And so, actually learning about that average star and then, you know, looking for other average stars in other systems, you know, that could also have planets around them that could sustain life. And so, you know, they're the things that are really exciting. You know, how do we... Building blocks of the solar system. We have OSIRIS-REx coming back in September, bringing samples with it from an asteroid Bennu, which is a very old asteroid that has, you know, those, those precursors Of our solar system embedded in it. So what are we going to find out from that asteroid that enabled our planet to form, that enabled it to sustain water, to sustain life? So, you know, it's those kind of links that, that we have from almost any area of the science at NASA that just organically link to other areas of science. So they're the things that get me the most excited.
0: So there are so many of these links and so many questions out there, no project is ever going to say, oh, we need less money. We need less telescope time. How do you even start trying to balance them all?
5: Well, so we have we have obviously agency priorities. You know, we have things that uh, we, we, we want to do as an agency. We also have a lot of community input through our national academies. And so, you know, every 10 years, we have a decadal survey that is done and members of, you know, really diverse um, sort of group of scientists and, and engineers and people that know how to do missions get together um, and they give us our decadal survey and there's you know one for each of the different divisions here um, in the science mission Directorate that really tells us what our priorities um, for science are going to be or should be you know and so we get a lot of of really great input about um, what the exciting science, what what our priorities should be and then you know obviously, as you say, nobody ever says, "Oh no, no, we only need half that budget. We'll do half the science." I mean, we're always trying to do more, more science, more technology, more everything else. But you just have to balance it. I mean, there is a finite amount of resources uh, that we have, and that's not just budget. That's also the number of people that we that we have available to work on missions. So there's all you know, there's lots of things we have to balance. So um, you know, there's a lot of constraints. Um, but golly, I'm still the best job on the planet. So
0: speaking of of limited budgets, limited time, there was a planned mission to Venus, Veritas. Uh, the recent budget request doesn't have any funding for it in the coming year. What happened there?
5: again, it's it's actually just balancing priorities. Uh, so we have a mission that is going to be launching at the end of this year called Psyche. They had some some issues. They missed their launch window. And, you know, you you don't want to stop a mission that's about to launch. You know, you've put a lot of effort, a lot of a lot in it. And so, uh, you know, that that mission is going to go ahead and launch in October. Uh, you know, unfortunately, because of of the finite budget, Veritas um, had to be delayed, not canceled, delayed. And so, you know, they 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 will get their shot. But unfortunately, it's not as early as they would have liked it, but Veritas is still very much in our plan moving forward.
0: There's research at NASA that is sort of focused on where we came from, the star origin, planet origin. There's research that looks at where we are now with all of the Earth-observing programs. And then there's research that looks at where we're going with exoplanets and planetary habitability and things like that. Where do your interests lie?
5: Literally across all that you just said. I mean, that's what I, I said about the linkages between the, the science and, and honestly, heliophysics is kind of, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I, I'm a heliophysicist. I'm going to, to like heliophysics, but it actually touches every one of the other. There's a big overlap between heliophysics and, and each of the other divisions, you know, and so that's what I was saying about the, Science is just so exciting, and just as you start learning about it, you know, you just find oh, the questions that you were asking in your sort of your little little field of research are applicable in in all of the others, and so, um, you know, where the, the uh, Osiris Rex telling us about where we came from, you know, looking at uh, web, looking. S- Further back than anything possibly can, you know, to the to the, the beginnings of, of our universe. I mean, there's so much exciting stuff. I literally could not pick a favorite.
0: You mentioned Osiris Rex and Psyche. Are there other upcoming missions that you're especially excited about?
5: Um I'm excited about just about everything that we have in the portfolio as we start to do the Earth System Observatory. Really putting all different ways that we're going to be looking at our planets of how, how we protect planet Earth. We have Tempo coming up that are looking at how pollution sort of evolves over the day And night looking 24 seven, um, looking down at, I think it's got a field of view from like the Gulf of Mexico up to the oil flats of Canada. And it's, it goes from the Atlantic to to the Pacific. I mean, I'm just going to shamelessly plug a little mission for heliophysics called OR, the atmospheric wave experiment. And it's a little instrument and it's going to go on the International Space Station. And that's launching at the end of this year, too. You know, we also have a mission going to Mars called Escapade that is going to look sort of at the at the solar wind and how it how it impacted Mars. And actually, you know, we also are kicking off the heliophysics big year, which is we've got eclipses that you're gonna be able to see from the U.S. Uh, later this year, they will have an annular eclipse. So that's when, you know, the moon isn't quite in the right place to block out all of the sun, but you'll see a sort of ring of fire around the sun. Um, if you're going to look at that, you must wear your glasses, must, must, <laughs> must wear your glasses. So that one eclipse glasses. But then next year in April, we'll have a total solar eclipse, which, um, if anyone saw that in 2017, is just the most amazing experience. So much exciting going on. Just uh, that's just in the next year.
0: The plaque on the door says you're in charge of science, but obviously in any government role there are, there are political considerations here too, right?
5: Um, yes. I mean, uh, some of the, the, the really exciting things actually are, are, you know, working with our government friends in the White House and planning out how how just science is going to grow overall. Working with the Office of Science, Technology and Policy about their priorities and how, you know, how we can help, how we can actually literally Lift science up for everybody. I think is just a, a it's a great experience to be able to do all this. You're
0: listening to Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Nicola Fox, Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate at NASA. Y- you've said in the past that it was sort of a dream to work for NASA. Tell me a little bit about your career path and how you got here.
5: I'd always loved science. Definitely, science was. my favorite subject. I, I went to college, studied physics. I wasn't, didn't, didn't really love it when I was at college. Not going to lie. Had some, some uh, definite sort of imposter syndrome and some issues with physics at first. I went and did a master's in uh, satellite communications and telecommunications. And when I was there doing my master's, I mean, literally every one of my professors said to me, you don't think like an engineer. You think like a scientist. You're worried about, you're not worried about the how, you always want to know why. And you ask, you know, in quotes, the wrong questions. And so I went back to Imperial College in London, is where I did my PhD. I, I also did my first degree there. I went back there and I did space plasma physics PhD and loved it and, you know, was obviously very excited about my work, as as one is when you're doing a PhD, you think it's the best thing ever. Um, And I was at a meeting in uh, in Alaska, and I was presenting my work. And a scientist came over and said, you know, would you be interested in applying for a postdoc at NASA? And, you know, I, Mm. I didn't even know that was a possibility. You know, coming from the UK, it never occurred to me that I actually could go and work for NASA. And so I jumped at the chance, applied for the postdoc, was lucky enough to be awarded it and um, moved to Goddard Space Flight Center, Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, I was there for uh, about three years and then I went up to uh, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and worked on a number of different NASA missions, the, the last one being Parker Solar Probe. After that, I came here for heliophysics.
0: Do you have any advice for any young scientists who might want to follow in your footsteps and get that great NASA job?
5: Um you know I I think the most important thing is to do what you love do whatever's in your heart that's really the most important thing if you do what you love you may find that that opportunity opens up for you and honestly if you want to work for NASA there's a, so many different careers and so many different types of jobs that that are necessary to get missions off the ground or to to get people to different destinations and so really whatever you want to do there's probably a career path for you at NASA. Uh,
0: Aside from the sun do you have a favorite space object some planet or galaxy that really speaks to you?
5: Um I I have to say I've, I've, I've always just I've always been a sucker for Saturn. I have. It's always been my favorite planet. I, I think it's because it has the rings. But it's, it's just always been the one that I, I, I love looking at it through the telescopes and, and um, you know, all the, the amazing work that's been done you know, with Cassini and just studying uh, Saturn. That, that's, that's probably my favorite one, if I had to pick one.
0: I love them all, of course. Do you have a favorite space fact, the thing that makes
5: you just say, wow, that's so cool? So this is going to sound really pathetic if I give you what I, the, the thing that honestly I think is so cool. But the fact that, you know, when we, we send missions, we look at the sun, we look, you know, we're studying it in all different ways. And then the fact that the sun is a star and there are, you know, so many other stars that are like our sun, you know, and so, so for me, it's just that feeling that we're in this solar system and, you know, it's great and we think that's the be all and end all but we're a little tiny piece in this huge universe you know and so we can study everything then and, and then how we apply it to other other places but just that that feeling that we you know we have this opportunity to study a star up close we have an opportunity to study planets and then we have the ability to sort of look into the depths of the universe and apply all the knowledge that we have from here to all those far-reaching places. So it's kind of cheesy, but I, it, it's just that feeling of of what we do here has so much, so many bigger impacts on, on everything else. That's
0: all the time we have. I, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Nicola Fox, Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate at NASA. She's based in Washington, DC. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear it again, you can subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You know, every day now is Science Friday.
2: Say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us. The address is sci at sciencefriday.com. Send feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover, too.
0: I'm Charles Bergquist.
2: And I'm Flora Lichtman. Have a great weekend.